Good afternoon. You're listening to WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming online at WVEW.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views of this show are those of the guest and the host, not the radio station. <clears throat> Indigo Radio is a group of area educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. I'm Corey Sorensen. I teach fourth grade in Guilford. Hi, I'm Chris Levensey. I teach uh, high school history in Springfield, Vermont. And Chris, what, what's the focus of the show today? Um, hi, Corey. Thanks. Uh, today's we're going to focus on the history and tradition of Thanksgiving, but what is also uh, known as the National Day of Mourning. Um, and just to kind of explain that a little bit, the National Day of Mourning began in 1970 as a protest. Um, this day of mourning takes place in Plymouth, Massachusetts every year. This year, in particular, was the 49th year uh, of holding that. It's been organized by United American Indians of New England, UAN, and um, kind of their motto or their slogan is, we are not vanishing, we are not conquered, we are as strong as ever. And so um, I'll read just a little bit from the UAN website, and it says... Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day is a reminder of the genocide of millions of Native peoples, the theft of Native lands, and the relentless assault on Native culture. Participants in National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native peoples to survive today. It is a day of remembrance and spiritual connection, as well as a protest of the racism and oppression which Native Americans continue to experience. Um, so I thought, Corey, we could uh, start out with playing a little segment from Democracy Now! from a uh, 2016, which has uh, one of my favorite authors, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, uh, who is the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, as well as a book called Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Um, and in this clip, she's talking about uh, a little bit about the history of Thanksgiving. So I thought that would give us a little context to start with today recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day. To discuss this and more, we're joined in San Francisco by Indigenous historian and activist Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's the author of An Indigenous Peoples History of the United States and co-author of All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. Uh, welcome back uh, to Democracy Now!, uh, Roxanne. Uh, could you tell us, as the nation prepares to observe uh, Thanksgiving, a national holiday ostensibly meant to honor Native people. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, actually, it's never been about honoring Native Americans. It's been about the origin story of the United States, the beginning of genocide, dispossession, and constant warfare from that time, actually from 1607 in Jamestown, uh, until the present. Uh, it's a colonial system that was set up. There's a sort of annual um, uh, calendar uh, for this origin story, beginning with Columbus, October 12. Why celebrate Columbus? It was the onset of colonialism, the slave trade, and dispossession of the Native people of the Americas. So that is celebrated with a federal holiday uh, that's followed then by Thanksgiving, which is uh, a, a uh, completely made-up story to say the Native people welcomed uh, these people who were going to devastate their civilizations, uh, which is simply a lie. Uh, and then you go to uh, President's Days, the Founding Fathers in February, and celebrate uh, these slave owners, uh, Indian killers, George Washington headed the Virginia militia uh, for the very purpose of killing uh, Native people on the periphery of uh, the colony uh, before, you know, when it was still a Virginia colony. And then we have uh, the big day, the fireworks, July 4th, uh, Independence, which is probably the most tragic event in world history because it gave us, it gave the world uh, a genocidal regime under the guise of democracy. And um, that's really the, I'm a historian, so that's the historical context that I think we have to 
uh, see Thanksgiving in, that it is, it is a part of that mythology that attempts to cover up uh, the real history of the United States. Uh, it, it actually, when it was introduced as a holiday uh, by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, there was no mention of pilgrims and uh, native people or food or pumpkins or anything like that. It was simply a day uh, for families to be together and mourn their dead and be grateful uh, for the living. And I think that's an appropriate holiday uh, that, that uh, how people should enjoy it. But they should take uh, Native Americans and Puritans out of the picture for it to be a legitimate holiday of uh, feast and and sharing with family and friends. Uh, so that's uh, you know the people at Plymouth. Uh, I send greetings to them. Uh, they have for many years. I think it's almost forty years now that. Uh, stood up and, and uh, testified to uh, the lie of Plymouth Rock, the Mayflower, the Pilgrims. Uh, and um, this is very hard for people to give up. This is the national nationalism. It's actually Americanism uh, is um, white supremacy and uh, represents negative things. There's almost no way to uh, reconcile it, it simply has to be deconstructed and faced up to, and otherwise there will be no social change that's meaningful for anyone. Uh. So that was Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz talking on Democracy Now!, giving a little context to this day of mourning. Um, and, the, and for me, Corey, some of the things, uh, she put a lot in there in that short little clip, and um, a piece of that, that this Thanksgiving is part of this whole uh, line of, of mythology um, that we, and I think about this as a teacher that I um, deal with, and it's taught in school, and that's what I was taught as a young person and going through school, and um, the things that I wasn't taught, that the things she talks about absolutely was not, they were not mentioned in my um, history books. And so this mythology that covers up these actions of genocide and colonialism and she puts in there, too, that it's really hard for people to give up this nationalism, give up these myths, give up. I love gorging on turkey on Thanksgiving and all of that stuff and the stuff that goes with it. Um, I have to swallow a lot more when I have understood the, the real history of stuff. And so that's really hard for people to give up. So. And luckily, we're eating turkey at Thanksgiving instead of the wild fowl that they were eating exactly. in 1621. Exactly. Um, so... We, uh, she mentions at the end, too, that we have to deconstruct this to, to be able to and face it, face up to it. And so we hope to talk a little bit more about that. Um, we're going to go into a song break. Um, and I think we're going to start out with um, Savage Family, their song Native Holocaust. Took his son from his home, yeah, they pulled him apart They took a daughter from her home, they were forced to depart Amongst the others on the train, they called the Iron Horse Another native fell victim to their holocaust The devils came to the village, posing his priest Stealing children from their homes, took and placed them in a school To erase them and undo what they labeled as savage Before the gates of long hair, she had tossed in a pound Like it was garbage stripped down from your customer type Your skin scrum till it bleed, put his clothes in a fight And various items, replace them with all Give him a Bible, teach him to read Preach him indeed If he speaks one word of his tongue No song song from the homeland Which he learned as a young buck From an old sage in the village To a school made a break What they planned was to kill him Save the man was the model Sodomized by a priest Traumatized getting beat Cooling races when he eat Many die cause they starve No one notified Buried in the yard for not following the cross All the fishes from my ancestors Your heart beats through took me took son from his home Yeah they pulled him apart They took a daughter from my home They were forced to depart Amongst the others on the train, they called the Iron Horse. Another native fell victim to their Holocaust. Sounds good. Forget. I'm not sure I could. They say time heals everything. But I'm still waiting. She came from a family of five. 
she was nine at the time when they came to pay the people a visit with a man who translated the language they promised beautiful things that she attended without mentioning the evil they imposed his hands clammy and they go as he shakes with a smile on his face now she on her way to call out with no knowledge of her fate he tell her calm down calm now we at the gate she see the faces of her schoolmates saddened and broke they sat her down caught her hair and made her wear proper clothes to look civilized no more living like a tribe lies so if you try to speak a word in your tongue your mouth washed was the punishment amongst others girls raped and made mothers babies born babies murdered women sterilized an act of genocide you heard me the government cause we didn't die we survived they took his son from his home yeah they pulled him apart they took a daughter from her home they were forced to depart amongst the others on the train they called the iron horse another native fell victim to their holocaust Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. Uh, that was Native Holocaust by Savage Family. Today on Indigo Radio, we're talking about the National Day of Mourning. This year, we celebrated the 40, the 49th. Commem- commemorated the 49th National Day of Mourning. Um, and for today's show, we're going to focus on uh, sharing speakers from the event of the National Day of Mourning. All of the speakers of the event are indigenous speakers, uh, and we'll begin by sharing the voice of the son of the original organizer of the National Day of Mourning in 1970. Uh, He is Wampanoag Munanam Roland James. And again, welcome to the 49th National Day of Mourning. Yeah. Give yourselves a round of applause because you're you're moving. You're generating some heat. If my hands don't freeze up, here we go. And once again, on the fourth Thursday in November, United American Indians of New England and those who support us are gathered on this hill to observe a national day of mourning. Today marks the 49th time that we have come here. Yeah, in all kinds of weather. To mourn our ancestors and speak the truth about our history. Those who started National Day of Mourning could not have envisioned that generations would still be here, year after year, carrying on this tradition. And many of the elders who stood on this hill and organized that first day of mourning are no longer with us, but we feel their spirits guiding us today. 49 Thanksgivings ago, my father, an Aquino Wampanoag named Wamsuda Frank James, was invited to address a gathering celebrating the 350th anniversary of the arrival of the pilgrims. And when asked by the organizers, to provide an advanced copy of the speech he planned to deliver, Wamsuda agreed. When they saw the speech, the planners told him he could not speak only if he were willing to offer false praise of the pilgrims. The organizers were even willing to write a speech for him. After all, they said, and I quote, the theme of the celebration is brotherhood and anything inflammatory would be out of place. He refused to have words put in his mouth. And National Day of Mourning came into being as a result of that refusal. And instead of speaking at the banquet, he and a group of indigenous peoples and allies from throughout the Americas gathered here on this hill and observed the first National Day of Mourning in 1970. Now, what really happened on that first Thanksgiving, or what some of us call the first thanks-taking? According to popular myth, the pilgrims, seeking religious freedom, landed on Plymouth Rock. The Indians welcomed them with open arms, and then promptly faded into the background, and everyone lived happily ever after. The end. But here's the truth. First, the pilgrims are glorified and mythologized because the circumstances of the first colony in North America, Jamestown, 
was frankly too ugly to hold up as an effective national myth. We can't teach school children about cannibalism or have them dress up as starving people in class plays. Pilgrims and Indians are much more marketable today. Second, the pilgrims came here as part of a commercial venture. They didn't need religious freedom. They already had that back in Holland or the Netherlands. The Mayflower Compact was merely a group of white men who wanted to ensure they could get a return on their investment. When they arrived on Outer Cape Cod, by the way, not on that pebble down the hill, one of the first things the pilgrims did was to rob Wampanoag graves at Corn Hill and steal as much of their winter provisions of corn and beans as they were able to carry. The writings of the colonists themselves describe these actions taking place. The next part of the mythology is true. My Wampanoag ancestors did welcome the pilgrims, little knowing that they and other indigenous peoples would be dispossessed and killed by their guns and hanging rope as well as their diseases. And what did we get in return for all this kindness? Genocide, the theft of our lands and never-ending repression. The first official Thanksgiving did not take place in 1621 when the pilgrims had a harvest time meal provided largely by the Wampanoag. Instead, it was officially proclaimed by Governor Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1637 to celebrate the massacre of over 700 Pequot men, women, and children on the banks of the Mystic River in Connecticut. Governor Winthrop wrote of this event, those that escaped the fire were slain with the sword. Some hewed to pieces, others run through with their rapiers. Thus destroyed about 400 at this time. It was a fearful sight to see them frying in the fire. Horrible was the stink and scent thereof, but the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the prayers thereof to God who had wrought so wonderfully for them. And for the next four or next 100 years, every Thanksgiving day ordained by a governor will be in honor of the bloody victory, thanking God that the battle had been won. And yet the history books call us savages. So why does any of this matter? When people perpetrate the myth of Thanksgiving, they are not erasing our genocide, but also celebrating it. For my ancestors, the pilgrim's arrival marked the beginning of the end. Those of us who managed to survive this genocide are treated as quaint relics of the past, forever relegated to this one point in history. But we did not simply fade into the background, as the Thanksgiving myth says. We have survived, thrived, and we have persevered. Yeah. The very fact that you are here is proof that we did not vanish. The fact that other people, having seen through the pilgrim myth, join us every year in the struggle to destroy that mythology is proof that we did not simply vanish. In our very presence, frees this land from the lies of the history books and the myth makers. We will remember and honor all of our ancestors in the struggle who went before us. We will streak uh, speak truth to power as we have been doing so since the first day of mourning in 1970. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That first day of mourning was a powerful demonstration of native unity. Today is a powerful demonstration of not only indigenous unity, but the unity of all people who want to speak truth to power. People who want the truth to be told and want to see an end to the oppressive system brought to these shores by the pilgrim invaders. And sadly, the conditions which prevailed in Indian country in 1970 still prevail today. In 1970, we demanded the end of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. 
and it is still a demand today. Native nations should not need federal oversight to govern ourselves or take control of our own lands. Recently, the Department of the Interior ruled that the Mashpee-Wampanoag should not be able to take their own ancestral territory into trust. In other words, the Mashpee are threatened with having their own land ripped away from them for a second time. This decision represents an attack on self-determination and sovereignty of all Native nations throughout the country, especially those who are federally recognized after 1934. I hope you will stand with Mashpee and support pending legislation that will give Mashpee the right to petition for land to be taken into trust. And please tell your congresspeople that this legislation should also be applied to other tribes in Massachusetts and elsewhere where federally recognized after 1934. And those who spoke of National Day or started National Day of Mourning also spoke of terrible racism and poverty. That continues. Some reservations, such as the Navajo, do not even have clean drinking water for thousands of their people. Native youth suicide and school dropouts rate continue to be the highest in the nation. However, Native peoples continue to display resilience in the face of ongoing settler colonial oppression and work hard to ensure to take care of our communities and find solutions to problems that we face. Now more than ever, we know, all know that racism is alive and well. All of us are struggling under the oppression and capitalist system which forces people to make a bitter choice between heating and eating. And we will continue to gather on this hill until the U.S. military and corporations stop polluting the earth until we dismantle the brutal apparatus of mass incarceration. We will not stop until the oppression of our two-spirited siblings is a thing of the past. When the homeless have homes. When people from Mexico, Central and South America are no longer demonized and targeted by politicians in search of a scapegoat. When the Palestinians reclaim the homeland and the autonomy Israel has denied them for the past 70 years. When no person goes hungry or is left to die because they have little or no access to quality health care. And when union busting is a thing of the past. Until then, the struggle will continue. And as we Got did in 1970, right. we mourn the loss of millions of our ancestors and the devastation of the land, water, and air. And we condemn all acts of violence and terrorism perpetrated by all governments and organizations against innocent people worldwide. Since the invasion of Columbus and the rest of the Europeans, Native people have been virtually non-stop victims of terrorism. From the colonial period to the 21st century, this has entailed torture, massacres, systematic military occupations, and the forced removals of indigenous peoples from their ancestral homelands. And let us not forget that this country was founded on the idealism or the ideology of white supremacy. The widespread practice of African slavery in a policy of genocide and theft. And let us not forget that under the pipelines, skyscrapers, mines, and the oil rigs lie the interred bones, sacred objects, and villages of our native ancestors. Today, on liberated territory, we will correct the history of a country that continues to glorify butchers such as Christopher Columbus, that makes slave-owning presidents such as Washington and Jefferson into godlike figures and even carves their faces into the sacred black hills of the Lakota. Yeah. And on our program will be only indigenous speakers. This is one day when we speak for ourselves without non-native people, so-called experts, intervening to interpret and speak for us. Yeah. 
our very presence frees this land from the lies of the history books, the profiteers, and the myth makers. We will remember and honor all of our ancestors in struggle who went before us. We will speak truth to power. We will remember all of our sisters and brothers, Leonard Peltier and Mumia Abu Jamal, who continued to be imprisoned. In 1970, very few people would have given any thought to the fact that the indigenous people of this hemisphere do not look upon the arrival of the European invaders as a reason to give thanks. Today, many thousands stand with us in spirit as we commemorate the 49th National Day of Mourning. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, in the spirit of Medicom, in the spirit of Geronimo, above all, to all people who fight and struggle for real justice, we are not vanishing. We are not conquered. We are as strong as ever. Yeah. Okay, that was Wampanoag speaker uh, Mononam Ro Roland James. Speaking at the day of mourning in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, the 49th day of mourning. Corey, what do you think? I mean... <clears throat> you were there. Yeah, I, what, a, what an inspiring speech. I, I, what I really appreciate is how he goes through the list of um, all the peoples who have been... Uh, terrorized and divided and kept poor by American wealth and power and to, sh to show the solidarity of those people that were there. It's yeah. been an amazing event to go to and see uh, what what people show up in solidarity together. Uh, Chris, and I know you've gone a few years and what inspires you to go to the Day of Mourning? Um, I really, it helps educate myself. It helps educate my teaching. Um, certainly to stand in solidarity with all those people there year after year after year. Um, have brought students down a number of years and it really helps uh, educate them both politically and socially. And, um, and I feel like it helps also stand uh, against white supremacy, this continued terrorist colonial actions. And so as Mr. James mentions, um, to be standing against that. And so uh, I feel constantly energized every time I go down there and um, kind of preparing for the show as well. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, both of us being in schools and experiencing the uh, festive festivities of Thanksgiving, thinking about what kinds of books kids are seeing in elementary schools um, about pilgrims and Indians together, happy, and Squanto as the, as the ally who helped the pilgrims come and grow for their new ventures. Um, one of the lines that uh, Mononam uh, said that really struck me is that pilgrims and Indians are much more marketable today. Mm. And that idea of Jamestown, the reality of, um, you know, people um, being cannibalized, um, digging up graves and eating what was left of the flesh of the graves, uh, of those people in the graves. Um, we can't talk about that. I didn't learn about that in my history books. And so there's a whole aspect that's left out and um, putting flowers on another putting lies and flowers on another myth and narrative uh, is very much what I was taught. And I think my the students that I work with that come into have that same um, narrative presented to them. And they don't, when I talk about Jamestown, they're like, I've never heard of this before. I, I never heard of this, these kinds of things before. So, And the problem with it being not only is that history <clears throat> left out, it, not only is it erasing the genocide, but it's celebrating it. Yep. And as um, Dunbar Ortiz described, the celebrations of all kinds of um, slave trade celebrated. Every single national holiday uh, is celebrating this legacy of American colonialism and expansion. And one other piece that he mentioned that I, I had missed before, but um, the Mayflower Compact is a business venture. And that these idea that, oh, these people want to separate and get religious freedom. There were, of the 122 people on board, 37 of them were these separatists. So a, a, a smaller proportion, about one third of the people on the boat and in their own writings, they needed people to help make this economic venture viable. So they recruited other people to be part of this, to go to make this an economic venture. And so they raised money from London stockholders to share in the profits of this planned colony. So from the very moment um, and all their efforts, it, it was a business venture. So interesting as he presented that too. Okay, we're, let's go to another song quickly. We have a lot of voices that we want to share today and not a lot of time, but this is an M-key and hip-hop educator, Tsutu 
Bakhtun Khan, uh, who says, For such a long time, it was considered an insult to be Mayan. Our ceremonies were prohibited, and we were even prohibited from speaking our own Mayan languages. So here's uh, their song. Okay, Corey, we're back. This is Indigo Radio, WVEW-FM. Um, today we're talking about um, Thanksgiving Day and the Day of Mourning and some of the myths that uh, are around that. And we had an amazing speaker um, to begin with. And we're going to share another speaker the, from the uh, Day of Mourning that happened this Thursday, Maltawin Monroe, who will um, talk a little bit more and go into some detail about some other pieces. So let's, let's share her voice. I want everybody to stand even closer to each other and hug each other, and that'll help us stay warm. You know, we are here in all kinds of weather, and sometimes it's really hard to be here, but then I think we think of what our ancestors went through, how they were turned out of their homes, their crops burned with no food in the cold. George Washington ordered that to happen. Lots of these settlers ordered that to happen. So. I think we can make it through this if we remember that, as long as we are close with each other and feel that love that we have for each other, that will help to keep us warm, okay? So I want to greet all of you who came here from the four directions. My mouth is freezing up, so I'm not speaking very well, but I'll do the best I can. We remember our elders who passed into the spirit world this year. We remember our siblings, including brave water protectors, who are in prison and cannot be here with us today. Greetings to those of you who are Nipmuc from the Mashpee and Aquina and other bands of the Wampanoag, Narragansett, Massachusetts, Pequot, and the other nations from this immediate region, whether or not they are federally recognized, who had their land stolen for the first time in the 1600s and are facing the possibility of having it re-stolen now. Welcome to all the indigenous people who are here from other nations throughout the Americas and any indigenous people from Australia, New Zealand, and the other parts of the earth who may be here today. We welcome representatives of our many non-native allies, including those representing struggles, such as the movement for black lives, because black lives matter. Those representing Gaza, Haiti, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and many other places. Thank you for being here with us. Many, many communities are mourning tragedies at this time. And thank you to those who have traveled long distances to be with us. And I especially want to honor Marie Runyon, who was an elder who just passed at age 103, who used to make sure that a bus came from Manhattan every year to come here. And also thank Daoud Andre for, for bringing um, a bus from Brooklyn. We appreciate that. <laughs> right. I read recently that there was a poll that showed that two thirds of non-natives in this country did not personally know an indigenous person. 
and 40% thought we were extinct, which makes me feel kind of like a unicorn, I guess. But, um, but we're still here, aren't we? No matter how much they try to erase us, we're certainly not extinct. As we come together in November of 2018, we as indigenous people face widespread attacks on our bodies, our families, and our land and sovereignty. We cannot separate any of those bodies, our individual bodies, our family bodies, and our tribal bodies from the land and water and plant and animal life all around us that are also part of our bodies. We are completely interconnected. Some of us who are here today come from families where we were taken away to be put in Indian residential schools or to be put in foster care or to be adopted by non-native families. We understand every day the pain and lifelong ruptures caused by being stolen from our families and often abused as a result. Even if we did not go through this ourselves, we may have family members who were stolen from their communities. Some of us had this happen in our families for multiple generations. We continue to experience intergenerational trauma within our families and tribal communities because of what happened. I raise this because in October, as some of you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act, called ICWA, was declared unconstitutional by a racist federal court in Texas. ICWA was passed back in 1978 to put a halt to all the indigenous kids in the U.S. who were growing up in non-native families without their culture and tribal connections. Before that law was passed, about a third of indigenous children were being removed from their families and adopted into white families. But now there are many forces who want to return us to those destructive times. In addition, thousands of our children are taken from their homes and placed in foster care, which is sometimes referred to as the new residential school because so many children are unnecessarily being separated from their families. In the US and Canada, indigenous children have disproportionately high rates of placement in foster care. Whole industries have grown up around adoption and foster care services. Money is being made from our children's wrecked lives. So when the media says that the separation of families by ICE is something new, we are clear that this is not something that just started. It has been happening for centuries to black and indigenous families, hasn't it? There are 573 federally recognized tribal nations in the U.S., with many more tribes that are state recognized. I say nations because we are members of distinct nations, many of whom have a nation-to-nation -nation treaty status with the U.S. or Canada. There are also millions of indigenous people here from Canada, Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and many other countries. The borders between all these countries are not our borders. Many of the refugees whose children are being stolen by ICE right now are Maya families. By and large, indigenous people here are horrified at the sight of stolen children in cages and carted off to detention centers because we feel so deeply the pain and fear of having our children stolen from us. So when we look at those stolen children and those families who are fleeing their countries that have been destroyed by U.S. policies, we grieve for their suffering too as they try to survive and keep their families together. I stand here today to demand that these refugees be given asylum by these pilgrim wash ashores who sit in the U.S. government. And we must demand an end to the theft of all of our children. These attacks are not just on our children. Indigenous women have been under attack since 1492. That has never ended. In modern times, it's estimated that from 1960 through the 1980s, 
As many as 25 to 50% of Native women in the U.S. were sterilized without their informed consent. This happened in Canada and Peru, other countries too. I am mentioning this today because it is still happening in Canada. Indigenous women there are being coerced into being sterilized in Saskatchewan and other provinces too, with stories coming out about Indigenous mothers being pressured while they are in labor to have their tubes tied, or not being allowed to see their newborn babies until they agree to be sterilized. A huge swath of future generations of our people has never been born as a result of anti-Indigenous public policies. We ask people today to wear something red, to say no more stolen sisters, to honor the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Rosalba has brought a flag with the red cloth to represent our stolen sisters. One of the many reasons that Indigenous nations all over are fighting against pipelines and fracking and mining is that man camps are set up for the workers. The men have huge sums of money and lots of drugs to entice indigenous women who often end up being addicted and trafficked. Some of these sisters disappear, some get killed. Missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two spirits are thought of as a, a Canadian issue, but it's a big problem in the US, Mexico and other places too. And it happens in cities all over, not just in rural areas. Murder is the third leading cause of death for U.S. Indigenous women. In Canada, several thousand Indigenous women are considered to be missing or murdered. In cities like Winnipeg, Indigenous youth, many of them in foster care, women and two spirits disappear all the time. In border towns with Mexico, women disappear all the time. Can you just say One of the problems in talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits is that indigenous women are often uncounted so that the numbers we have are very incomplete. Some cities such as Santa Fe, New Mexico do not even identify indigenous people separately in their statistics, even though of course there's a large indigenous population in that area. We do not appear in government statistics of many types, whether here in Massachusetts or nationally. Indigenous families who report that their relatives have disappeared are often met by a reluctance from authorities to investigate or file reports. Families are told things like, ah, she'll turn up, she's probably just off getting drunk somewhere. Most of the men who assault and murder indigenous women are white men. They are often not prosecuted even when they are apprehended, or they are acquitted by all-white juries or given a slap on the wrist. In addition, indigenous people continue to experience disproportionately high rates of police violence and imprisonment. Unhoused indigenous people are attacked and killed for fun in places like Albuquerque. The devaluation of the lives and bodies of indigenous people the violence against indigenous women in particular is deeply intertwined with the contempt that settlers and their systems have for the land. They do not respect our sovereignty as indigenous nations and they do not respect the sovereignty of our bodies. Indigenous people are always on the front line of defending the environment because state and federal governments issue permits to corporations that want to engage in destructive extractive actions on, our, on or near our lands. All over the Americas, pipelines, fracking, and mining are being pushed through on indigenous land without our consent. From Chile to Nova Scotia and Labrador to British Columbia, indigenous water protectors and land protectors are trying to stop these projects. A lot of you here know about the struggles at Standing Rock to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, but there have been many more frontline fights largely led by indigenous people against the Keystone XL Pipeline, the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, the TMT Telescope in Hawaii, and more. 
The resistance has continued in efforts to stop the development of sacred areas such as Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante and the sacred Apache Oak Flat area. In the Yucatan area of Mexico, Maya people are protesting the Maya train project to which they have not given consent. People talk about climate change all the time, but they often feel powerless in the face of government inaction and denial. Being with each, with each other at places like National Day of Mourning is a dress rehearsal for saving the earth. The earth will not be saved with all of these schemes, such as carbon credits, or this idea of putting a shield over the earth to block the sun. That's a real thing. <laughs> real change is going to come when non-Native people listen to indigenous voices. So today, we assert our right to care for one another and decolonize our minds, our histories, our languages, and our systems. We assert our right to defend our lives and our families and those of our relatives who have been crossed by the border. And we must defend the right to our lands from Mashpee to, our, to the Mapuche territory in Chile. Thank you. And we're back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. That was Matuin Monroe. Uh, Chris, she she gave a, a lot of details about the terror, acts of terror committed against indigenous people um, all over and also made uh, connections to acts of terror against other groups of people as well as sharing indigenous resistance. What are some of the connections that you saw? Well, it was really, uh, she really laid it out that this really is an international struggle, and it's been a struggle for over 500 years of uh, struggle and resistance. And uh, we have had shows, um, we went down to Oaxaca and Chiapas and looked at the struggles there. She very much talked about it's here and alive today and mentioning um, the separation of children from their families, ICE. Uh, today there's a record 14, over 14,000 children in shelters across the country that have been separated from their families. Um, and the continued sterilization of indigenous women, Canada has uh, several lawsuits that are going on currently about their government's uh, practice of this that go back 2009, 2011, 2017. Um, we can look at what the US has done um, and their program in particular in Puerto Rico um, with US government funding by 1968 one third of the women of Puerto Rico had been sterilized. One third of the women, like those sheer numbers just blow me away. Um, and I was doing some research in this and I looked um, recently, well, somewhat recently, 2008, there was a representative from Illinois, um, Louisiana, John Labruza, um, who put forth this plan. Um, he wanted to pay poor women $1,000 to have their fallopian tubes tied. And in conjunction with that, paying these poor women to have their fallopian tubes tied, he was going to offer tax incentives for college-educated, higher-income people to have more children. So if this isn't a clear, direct line to white supremacy and colonialism from the day that Columbus landed and the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock or wherever they landed in Jamestown, it, it's, it's so clear that same um, mentality and ideology is, is living and in in, is alive and being enacted today. Yeah, it's just criminal. It's uh, goes back to who is the who is the barbarian here? Who is who is the savage? Because I can't even imagine to be giving birth. Like what a life, what a um, life event to be having, and for somebody to come up and try to coerce you into tying your fallopian tubes in that moment is just not a living nightmare. Yeah, um, and we shouldn't forget our own history in Vermont of the of eugenics, the Vermont Eugenics Survey that ran from 1925 to 1936, which was a science program in an effort to breed a better Vermont, where they labeled people, mostly indigenous and uh, working poor, as defective, delinquent, and dependent Vermonters, and they sterilized many indigenous women without their knowledge. 
Yeah, so I think there's so much that both these speakers have put out, and there were many more speakers, and you can go to the United American Indians of New England and see some more of these facts, um, both as a teacher but also uh, a person that's involved in these. They talk about the pipeline, the fracking, the mining, the nuclear that we've faced here in Brattleboro, all of those placing profit over human beings and their bodies and the land um, absolutely in affects us as well. So they have a lot of information um, out there to, to kind of access to. So. Yeah, and while unfortunately I don't believe we're going to have time to share Marjorie Flowers' uh, speech at the, at the day of mourning, she came down from Canada. Uh, she's an Inuit woman and was sharing their struggles as Labrador land protectors. She lives up in La Labrador where they're rejecting Canadian hydro dams. And the uh, fortunately, one of our uh, somebody from Indigo Radio is planning on interviewing Marjorie Flowers uh, in a couple weeks and sh and on a show about dams. And it, the reason her uh, message is important is because the struggles of Dapple or Standing Rock shouldn't be seen as uh, something in isolation, but that companies are profiting off of the land and continue to profit off of the land. And people, indigenous people are resisting uh, in solidarity with others. And um, yeah, and one of the other things that both of our speakers have mentioned about uh, mass incarceration. And so I think we should end up by playing um, a speech by a political prisoner I mean, a, a letter that was written by a political prisoner who's shared every year at um, the Day of Mourning, um, Leonard Peltier. Um, and so the last speaker that we have um, to share today is Burt Waters, who will share um, Leonard Peltier's letter that he writes. And I think we hope to have him on the next show. We've reached out to his people, and he's agreed to give us a call here. And so we'd like to do a whole show just with him. But, <coughs> excuse me, but we'll play his speech today. Yeah, Leonard Peltier is a native political prisoner who was framed by the FBI for a crime he did not do. He's been in prison since 1976, and Burt Waters is an 87-year-old elder, and here he is reading the statement of Leonard Peltier. that he's bringing words to us today from say thank you everyone <clears throat> November 19 2018 statement of love and respect from your brother Leonard Peltier greetings sisters and brothers and elders and friends and supporters. Well, here it is. Sorry to say, another year. And I'm still writing to you from a prison cell. I am still in pain from my illnesses with no knowledge of whether I will ever get treatments for them. But I'm alive and still breathing, hoping, wishing, praying for not just my pains, but for all native nations and people of the world who care and have positive feelings about what is happening to our mother earth and against the evils committed by Washishu in their, great, in their greed for her natural resources. It doesn't seem as if any changes for the good or safety of Mother Earth will happen soon. But the good-hearted people are fighting back, and some good people are winning in the struggles to beat back some of this evil and to take and to make the changes, the safety networks. We need for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that they will be able to live happy successful lives, at least decent lives, that most of the poor, underprivileged in my generation never got to experience or enjoy in our short lives. So I sit back, look at the world, and I wonder if I will ever get to see the outside world again from this prison cell. 
at 74, at 74, it is not looking too good for that to happen. But I keep my hopes alive and pray as hard as I can that it will happen. If not, when, when they bury me, I want to be laid to rest face down and my and with a note pinned to my ass <laughs> with the words in large bold letters kiss my ass <laughs> just in case someone wants to study my bones years from now <laughs> on a more pleasant issue one of my granddaughters, Ashley, is in college at the University of Arizona, Flagstaff, and she wants to be a medicine woman. How awesome is that? My baby, a doctor, I could be how proud and how proud am I? You would not believe just how much I am. I could. Use a little help now and then for her. Don't send it to me, but send it to ILPDC, earmarked for her use only. She is going on a long, hard journey, so she will need help, help now and then. One day, if she continues her studies to be a medicine woman, I know things can change as time goes by. But if she makes it, she will be an enormous help to Native Nations hospitals. My friend Javi Aden passed yesterday on Saturday, 17 November, 2018, 5.20 p.m. He was a very kind and good man who loved Native people and the poor and the sick. We are all going to miss him. I hope he has a good journey to the spirit world. And I hope our relatives will all be there to greet him with open arms, so that would be very pleasing to him. See you soon, Marcola. Politically, we are making finally, we are finally making gains in Congress. Two great native ladies made it in the House of Representatives. They asked Sharice Davids, Ho Chunk of Wisconsin. For Kansas, Deb Halen, Laguna, Laguna, New Mexico. On Pine Ridge, my nephew, Julian Bear Runner, made it as president of the great Lakota Nation. I'm, I'm hearing more states are doing away with Columbus Day. Hell, we may just win the war of survival yet. My last thoughts on this day that we Native people can call a day of mourning are for my sisters and brothers, family, family by blood and by aim that are now in the spirit world. And to them I say, Lila Palaimaya, thanks, thank you for your love and work for the people. My thoughts are also with the youth, such as the water protectors and all people young and old who are working to protect Mother Earth. I hope someday in the near future to be with you and part of this march and join you in the feast prepared by Native people and wonderful supporters who have joined together today to honor our ancestors. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, Leonard Pelletier. Thanks, Corey. That was a letter from Leonard Pelletier from prison, and we're going to have a show um, more about his case and his situation soon. Uh, next week, Nick and Becca will be reporting back from the School of the Americas Watch, sharing stories from the U.S.-Mexico border and discussing border imperialism. And this whole show today was about the day of mourning and some of the myths of Thanksgiving, and we'd like to end it with... Uh, a song, Newe Jinan, uh, called Firemakers, and it's a group of Anishinaabe youth from the LaCroix First Nations in Ontario describing life on the reservation and what they want. So thank you for joining us today on Indigo Radio, and we'll see you soon.